Yeah, and that didn't exist when we were kids. That's why you didn't get Jane's Addiction until that nice young girl, Hadley, popped in the cassette tape and and drove you to ecstasy. Like, Hadley was your YouTube algorithm. She looked at you and she was like, number one, it's not happening between us. Number two, (laughs) you need some music that actually makes people want to have sex playing around you. And that's not going to be Richard Marks or NXS or whatever it is. It's going to be up the beach. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk about music and the way it can change your way of seeing the world, especially when you're young. Specifically, I share an essay I wrote for a book called The 33 and a 3 B-Sides, which came out last fall. It features music writers talking about how their lives were changed by acts like Leonard Cohen and Sinead O'Connor and Bruce Springsteen and Diggable Planets and Nine Inch Nails. My essay is about discovering the Jane's Addiction album Nothing's Shocking at a Christian summer camp when I was 18 years old. You might recall last season in episode 43, I talked to punk icon Ian Mackay about, among other things, how important his band Fugazi was to me when I was young. Jane's Addiction captured my imagination one year before I discovered Fugazi, and I came to love that band in a way that might be relatable if you've ever obsessed about music. Joining me in this conversation is novelist Todd Goldberg, whose Gangsterland franchise is being developed into a TV series for Amazon. Todd previously came on the podcast to talk about sports fandom and the Sears Christmas Wish Book. Back in the day, he was as fixated with Jane's addiction as I was, and since he lived in Southern California, where the band arose out of the local goth and metal scenes in the mid-1980s, he ended up seeing the band live nearly 100 times. Our conversation is specific to the music we loved back then, but it's less about the idiosyncrasies of Jane's addiction itself than the way music can affect your way of seeing the world at a certain time of your life. As usual, this episode is sponsored by Airtrex, which has great travel planning tools should you be in a band looking to book a world tour. And even if you aren't in a band, Airtrex is a great way to save money on round-the-world and multi-stop flight itineraries for vagabonding journeys. Check out their flight planning tools at airtrex.com and plug in your dream trip to see what I'm talking about. All right, here's Todd Goldberg and I talking about how music can affect you when you're young and specifically about our old fixation with the band Jane's Addiction. We start by talking about how Todd appeared in one of their MTV videos. Let's listen in. You know, I discovered Jane's Addiction, as you will soon find out in this essay I'm going to read at Evangelical Christian Summer Camp. I suspect that Todd Goldberg did not discover Jane's Addiction at Evangelical Summer Camp. No. We'll, we'll save that for later. But first off, I want to start with some some trivia that some people might not know about you, which is that you appear in Jane's Addiction video from 1990 called Stop. That how is correct. That, how did that happen? Well, welcome to the podcast, Todd. Welcome back. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. <laughs> And uh, why don't you tell us, uh, to kick things off, how you ended up in a Jane's Addiction video? Well, so the Jane's Addiction video for the song Stop, if you guys remember it, uh, or if you are pausing now to go look at it on YouTube, it actually was shot, uh, the the live concert parts were shot on top of Mount Baldy, which is a, you know, semi-ignored mountain in Southern California. There's no skiing on Mount Baldy, so people don't really go up there all that much. Um, but in 1990, they um, they announced a secret concert, and you could only attend by invitation this concert. And I happened to be working at a record store at the time, and this guy who I used to always see at Jane's Addiction shows came in, and he's like, hey, man, are you going to the show? 
And I said, no, I, I, I keep hearing about it, but um, I didn't get an invite. And he's like, oh, man, I'll get you one. And so he showed up the next day and gave me the invitation. And so you had to go drive to Pomona. And then in Pomona, you got on a school bus. And the school buses took you up Mount Baldy to this, uh, to this campground, essentially. Uh, the Mount Baldy Mountain Preserve. And um, there was a, a stage set up next to a swimming pool. And you can also see in the music video. And for most of the afternoon, there was just a like a cookout barbecue and everyone was just kind of hanging around and the band was milling around too. And they were just like, you can stand or sit anywhere you want. You could be on the stage if you want. You can do whatever you want to do. You know, just have a good time. You're here by invitation. And I remember there was an opening band. I want to say it was like a 12-piece Tejano band opened <laughs> up for Jane's Addiction. And I sat next to uh, Eric Avery, and his parents and Terry Nunn from Berlin and eat some barbecue and watch the Tejano band. Wow. And I have a picture from that moment with Eric Avery where we both look surprised to be there. Eric and, Avery being the bassist from Jane's Addiction. Correct. And so then right before the show started, um, we all made our way either to the front of the stage or around it to the side. And so I started off in the front of the stage. And in fact, there's um, a bunch of videos now of the full concert online. And you can see me jumping around acting like a fool on the, at the front of the stage. And there's only, I, sh I should say, 45 people there, 50 people at the most. So it's very small, very intimate. Um, and then as the concert went, um, me and my friend Jim walked around to the backside and stood next to uh, Stephen Perkins' drum kit and watched Stephen watch the show from back there for a while and so in the middle of the video for stop um at a, i believe it's about 45 seconds in you can see me wearing a blue stussy mock turtle t-shirt <laughs> standing in between perry farrell and dave navarro as they uh sing and play guitar with one another it's funny how this whole incident with the school buses and the barbecue sort of sounds like a Christian retreat, which is funny since <laughs> Christian summer camp involves the essay I'm about to read. It was the opposite of Christian summer camp, but in the place where Christian summer camp would take place, but with way more Jews, way more <laughs> Jews. <laughs> and I think your Jewishness precludes your origin story resembling mine at all. But Correct. I think right now I will read the essay about my own discovery. It's almost like in the Christian world, there's sort of these conversion stories. You tell your, quote, personal testimony about how you came to find Jesus. My personal testimony I will read right now. It's about discovering Jane's addiction in the summer of 1989. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about how you personally discovered Jane's addiction, Todd. All right. I can't wait. I was riding in the passenger seat of Hadley's red Honda CRX when I heard Jane's addiction's Nothing's Shocking for the first time. It must have been a Saturday, since that's the only day of the week we ever had off from our summer jobs at Eagle Lake Camp, where we were tasked with taking adolescents into the Rocky Mountain backcountry and telling them about Jesus. Hadley was from California. She was blonde, leggy, doggedly cheerful, and a tad clumsy when she shouldered her backpack and led campers into the Colorado wilderness. She had a goofball sense of humor, a jolly inability to show up on time for staff meetings, and a tendency to drive too fast on Rampart Range Road, the gravel track that linked our summer camp to the nearest town 35 minutes away. Hadley kept the CRX sunroof open as she drove, and the car swirled with the summery chill of mountain air and the vanilla smell of Ponderosa. I had recently graduated from high school in Kansas, and my two months in Colorado amounted to the longest I'd ever spent away from home. 
I was in love with Hadley in the passive, uncomplicated way all 18-year-old boys fall in love with 21-year-old women who pay attention to them. Hadley liked to talk when she was driving, usually about people she knew or places she wanted to visit. When she tired of talking, she would snatch one of the dozen or so cassette tapes that slid around on the CRX's floorboards and blast tunes. Apart from U2, which all young Christians were obligated to enjoy, or at least acknowledge in 1989, I didn't recognize any of Hadley's music. I had suggested we play the Joshua Tree at the outset of our drive to Woodland Park, but halfway through Bono's emotive rendering of Running to Stand Still, Hadley frowned at the sunlight slanting in through the pine trees all around us as if something wasn't quite right. Ejecting U2, she brandished a gray Maxell dub cassette and slid it into the tape deck. Jane's Addiction, she announced, cranking the volume as a slurry, roiling bass groove shook the car. (laughs) Up the beach, the ethereal, muscular, faintly psychedelic anthem that swelled over the bass line as Hadley's car sped through the pines was like nothing I'd heard in all my years of listening to pop and classic rock radio in Wichita. When the singer's voice shrieked up over the opening groove, it didn't form words so much as weave its way into the cascading guitar notes, swirling out and echoing back on itself. The effect was magical and incoherent and mesmerizing. Time, it felt, was decelerating, spooling out in slow motion. The song's only discernible lyric was Home, which the singer intoned with a plaintive, almost tender sense of urgency as the song's final chords rang out, pulsed, and faded away. In the span of just three minutes, Up the Beach had filled me with a haunted sense of longing. I might have asked Hadley to rewind the tape and play it again had we not at that moment been speeding toward my favorite stretch of Rampart Range Road, a spectacular two-mile span of grassy, treeless plateau with the elegant hulk of Pikes Peak dominating the westward horizon. The echoing silence after Up the Beach melted into a new texture— The shiny, almost classical-sounding chime of guitar threaded with the falsetto coup that built up, stretched out, and softened as Hadley drove us up from the trees into the sun-dazzled alpine meadow. Glancing over at me with a sideways grin, she shouted, One! Two! And before I could figure out what she was getting at, a banshee voice screamed, inside the car exploded with a thunderous clamor, a hammering swell of guitar, bass, and drums, a sound too powerful and thrilling for me to ever put into words. Hadley's Honda crested the grassy rise and Pike's Peak hove into view above the rocky sprawl of Colorado's front range, I felt like I was gazing out at a whole new universe. In retrospect, I think Hadley was a bit startled by my fixation with Jane's addiction after that heady Saturday morning drive. I've come to realize that Hadley has, in my memories, become kind of a manic pixie dream girl, a stock character often seen in movies whose eccentric tastes and quirky enthusiasm for life ultimately serves to shepherd the young male protagonist on a journey of self-discovery. Hadley was indeed quirky and ebullient, but her decision to play nothing shocking that day hadn't been a symbolically charged ploy to change my life. 
In real time, with the sun filtering through the pines on Rampart Range Road, I reckon she'd simply felt the blissed-up urge to hear it. In the days and weeks after our drive, I grilled her for more information about Jane's addiction, but she didn't seem to know a lot about the band. She was pretty sure they'd emerged from the post-punk glam scene in Los Angeles and that their bewitchingly powerful sound was the result of them blending gothic rock with heavy metal. I recall nodding along as she said this, though the only phrases that had any meaning for me at the time were heavy metal and Los Angeles. Unlike Hadley, I wasn't a full-on counselor at Eagle Lake Camp. As the youngest member of the staff, I'd been given the apprentice-level job of trip outfitter, which meant I spent a good deal of my time preparing food for the other counselors to use when they took kids into the backcountry. The trip outfitter's office had a battered Panasonic boombox, and the fact that I worked alone meant that I didn't have to endure the syrupy Christian praise pop favored by my co-workers. After my first flirtation with Jane's addiction, I'd begged the dub cassette off Hadley and wound up listening to nothing shocking as many as three times a day for the rest of the summer. My affinity for Up the Beach and Ocean Size, the opening tracks that had so beguiled me on that day up on Rampart Range Road, was so strong that sometimes I'd stop the tape when the final strains of Ocean Size faded, rewind it, and listen to them both again. My relationship to all the music on Nothing Shocking as it played out on the boombox each day was very much constrained by the pre-internet era. As I listened to the songs on that gray plastic dub cassette, I had no idea who the members of Jane's Addiction were, what they looked like, or even the names of the songs. The first few times I listened to the album all the way through, I was drawn to the heavier tunes, especially the stomping riffs of what I later learned was called Mountain Song. The album's closing track, Pigs in Zen, was even heavier and edgier, unhinged and menacing and uncomfortably electrifying. It also culminated in a demented spoken word pre-coda that included swear words, which meant I rarely listened to it all the way through for fear some earnest Christian might walk in and overhear it. to Nothing Shocking, however, the more I begin to appreciate its less bombastic songs. The punk riff lyrics of Had a Dad bewailed the seeming absence of God, for example, yet I found it oddly hopeful, no doubt because I misheard He's Not There at All to He's Not Dead at All. Jane Says, a sweet, sad, steel drum-driven pop number told the story of the band's drug-addicted namesake through a progression of lyrical telling details. It was catchy enough to sing along to and felt ready for rotation on American rock radio, which, unbeknownst to me, had already happened. Over time, however, I came to savor the middle of nothing shocking when the thunder of the album's early songs eased into the psychedelic euphoria of summertime roles. Anchored by a sleepy, bouncing bass line, its lyrics recount a sun-blissed day spent in the company of a loopy, faintly clumsy girlfriend. At the time, it made me think of Hadley, now it just reminds me of being young and alive in the summer of 1989. 
For the most part, I listened to these songs in secret, since the religious atmosphere of the camp tended to view all secular enthusiasms as potentially idolatrous. As it happened, Jane's addiction had indeed found a way into my soul, just not a part of my soul that plumbed the divine. It had occupied that raw 18-year-old part of my being that was hungry for new music and new experiences and new ideas. It spoke to an inchoate part of me that wanted to be different, to pay closer attention to what I might have been missing, to commune with as yet unseen versions of myself. Nothing shocking hadn't moved me because it filled me with a numinous purpose. It had moved me because it filled me with an exhilarated, inarticulate feeling of possibility, a sense that the world was wider and wilder than I'd previously assumed. Two years after my first encounter with Nothing Shocking, I saw Jane's Addiction live in concert for the first time. I was back home in Kansas that summer, working the graveyard shift at a supermarket in Wichita. I took a day off work and drove three hours to Kansas City's Sandstone Amphitheater, where I proffered my $20 ticket and settled in for a sweltering day-long show that also featured acts like Susie and the Banshees, Nine Inch Nails, Ice-T, Rollins Band, and the Butthole Surfers. I've since come to refer to that summer, the summer of 1991, as, quote, the year I cut off my mullet and went to Lollapalooza, end quote. In the popular imagination, 1991 has come to be remembered as a turning point year in that end of the millennium moment before the internet appended the way we consume culture. Prior to 1991, the story goes, bloated pop and hair metal acts ruled the airwaves before the meteoric success of Nirvana's Nevermind revolutionized the notion of what could be popular, knocked Michael Jackson's Dangerous off the top of the Billboard charts, and ushered, quote, alternative culture into the mainstream. Jane's Addiction plays a de facto supporting role in this fable since the popularity of Lollapalooza, the itinerant music festival founded that summer by Jane's frontman Perry Farrell, is commonly acknowledged as a harbinger of what was to come. In this sense, nothing shocking could be seen as a voice crying in the desert, prophetically anticipating Nevermind's messianic moment. But for me, at that time in my life, the songs on that album weren't about zeitgeist or historical cause and effect so much as the way they made me feel when I listened to them. Jane's Addiction was the last band to play that day at Sandstone Amphitheater, and they took the stage in the darkened cool of the late July evening. They opened with Up the Beach, closed with Ocean Size, and played summertime roles during the encore. I watched, enraptured, from a fenced-off general admission lawn about 150 yards away from the stage. To this day, it remains the most affecting rock performance I've ever witnessed in person, less for its artistic virtuosity than the way it made me yearn for everything in my life that was about to happen. So that was a little story about, one, how I discovered Jane's addiction, and two, how I cut off my mullet in the summer of 1991, <laughs> which is a culturally significant experience, and I'm not uh. sure. I think we'll end up, Todd, talking about a lot of generational-specific things. I don't know if changing your haircut can mean that much in this current year as it did back in 1991, but cutting my mullet certainly seemed like a life-altering event. I'm curious to know, one, what your hairstyle was in 1989, and two, how you came to know of the band Jane's Addiction. 
Oh, well, 1989, I was already preparing myself for a future as a frat boy. So I had, <laughs> I had a modified fade by the time 1989 rolled around. So uh, short on the sides, a little longer on the top. Right. Um, you know, the average look of a Southern California white boy looking for trouble. But in 1987... When I first encountered Jane's Addiction, when I was 16 years old, I had blonde tips, Ooh. and uh, I think I had maybe a step shaved into the back of my hair. Also, I was coming out of sort of a, a quasi, like, if if The Cure had a summer member, like, I like to wear <laughs> shorts, I like to wear t-shirts, I like to wear pastels, but I was a little gothy. Like, I was coming out of that, because also at the same time, at age 16, I realized, oh, I had I had decided to be Ducky. Ducky didn't get the girl. Um, I need to be more like Andrew McCarthy. <laughs> who's who's been a guest on this podcast actually? And Andrew McCarthy, interestingly enough, he uh, he acted a short story of mine at one of those staged reading things, and he was great. He was fantastic and uh, a lovely man, a really good guy. He, he is a good guy, yeah. Um, so uh, when I first met Jane's Addiction as a teenager. Um, and I mean, literally met them in this case as well. Wow. Um, I had blonde tips and, you know, shaved steps into the side of my head. Which is very California. Like, I think because this is geographical, because of geography, because I grew up in Kansas, I literally could not look like that. Right. You would have been shot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so tell me, and I think this is, this is great because we come to this through different sides of the country, although I think our, our love for Jane's Addiction probably had a lot of similarities. So tell me how Jane's Addiction came on your radar and what you thought of them. So I first heard them when they were, literally their first record came out. Not Nothing shocking, but um, the self-titled, what they typically call the Triple X record. Triple mm. um, X was the label that they were on. It was a small... Uh, punk rock label and it's an all live record um that came out in 87 and that's what got them essentially their deal with uh warner brothers um but jane's addiction had been playing a lot in southern california uh, i think since 85 or so and of course perry farrell had been around a bit before that with his with his other band um but you know i lived in palm springs and um i was you know i was into sort of new wave and punk music at the time and we would go to L.A. and go to free shows and sneak into places that let you in um, that, that didn't card and stuff. And so you would see Jane's Addiction playing. Um, and this is a period of time in the in the late 1980s where you would go to a club in Los Angeles and you'd see Jane's Addiction. You'd see Fishbone. You'd see the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You'd see Thelonious Monster. Um, and then you might see L.A. Guns or something as <laughs> right. well. All, yeah. all at the same time. Like they were all like. In what, the same realm. What year is this? Mid-80s? Yeah, this is 1986, 1987. Okay. Um, and, you know, you could you could get into the punk clubs pretty easily. They didn't really card. They didn't really care. So, you know, places like Raji's or Scream, places like that, if you, you know, if you were wearing makeup, like, they didn't care. They just let you in. <laughs> Did you wear makeup, Todd? Well, there were some times I might have thrown on a little eyeliner, a little pancake, you know. Okay. All right. You know, All right. I ran with a rough crowd. Uh <laughs> So I first encountered their music for sure in in eighty seven when um, when the Triple X record came out, and I was blown away. Um, what I remember first is that I'd never heard anything like them, and that live record, you know, it's it's not 
it's not mastered particularly well. <laughs> I mean, it was like probably recorded on someone's phone or something. Well, not their <laughs> phone because there were no phones then. Right. Um, someone's four track recorder. Um, but they didn't sound like anybody. And when they when they played "Sympathy for the Devil" mm. on that record, and it sounded dirtier and scarier than the Rolling Stones version. I was like, oh, this is something. And, this is something weird. And Perry was singing through a guitar pedal that made his voice sort of echoey, right? Right, exactly, exactly. So that began um, my obsession. But the interesting thing, and, and this is a really, I think, unusual thing. Um, maybe it's not unusual in other places, but like at the time, like Jane's Addiction became the band of my high school. Huh. So like all like this group of guys and we were from, you know, all sorts of different socioeconomic and uh, click groups all were into Jane's Addiction at the time. And it's just sort of spread that everyone was into Jane's Addiction. And so like there'd be a show and, and, you know, 30 guys would drive up to L.A. to see a show or something. So when, for instance, they played 10 nights at the John Anson Ford Theater um, and this was in 1989. They played ten nights, and wow. I went to seven nights of the, of the ten nights. And every night we would drive from Palm Springs to LA, like ten of us guys, and then turn around and come home. And every night we were studying at someone else's house. Just to give a little contrast, just because I like Jane's Addiction came out of nowhere for me, mm -hmm. um, and I was really listening to received music. You know, right. Um, my first concert was Van Halen, but I also went to Striper, which was like the Christian Motley Crew. Right. <laughs> and, and I also went to Amy Grant because my girlfriend was a preacher's daughter, and and oh, you just went. God. I mean, she didn't even like Amy Grant; she just had to go, and so I went with her. Um, and so this, I mean, this would have blown my mind, the idea that there was a kid like you in California who had the option of doing this, mm -hmm. um, because. You have to realize, I listened to Jane's Addiction. It was two years before I cut off my mullet. I went back. I, I started wearing a beret because I sort of thought that's what you were supposed to do. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> my, dad, my dad had a vest that he got in Guatemala in the 60s, so I started wearing that. Like, I just had – I had no idea. And, and so this is fascinating. So, so please proceed about what it was like to actually be cool in the 1980s. Well, it, it became such a prevalent thing at my high school that, in fact, the administration had to tell us, look, some of the older teachers are offended by the T-shirts. Hmm. So you'll remember the Jane's Addiction Nothing Shocking album cover yeah. has this, the, um, the two women on fire that are topless. And even the Jane's Addiction Triple X cover, it's Perry spread out, but he looks a little nude and disfigured. And I think he's wearing um, a, a corset or some sort yeah, of women's a loin clothing. Yeah, cloth or something, yeah. yeah. And so there was like a proclamation at Palm Springs High School in 1988, like, hey, easy on the flaming women <laughs> that are topless. <laughs> Mr. Bingham doesn't like to see it. Um, so it was a it was a real thing. But... At the same time, you know, we were we were really into Jane's Addiction, but we were also deeply just into this whole burgeoning L.A. scene um, that they were part of, you know, and it was a, it was a really inviting scene at the time. So, you know, the Peppers and Thelonious and Jane's and Fishbone and the Untouchables, you know, bands like that, that it was, you know, it was both rock and punk and a little bit of ska, all that stuff. Huh. All these all these groups would 
play together and you'd see them playing on each other's records and, and all this different stuff. And you'd go to shows and, you know, the Chili Peppers would play and then they'd step off the stage and they'd just, you know, be hanging out in the crowd. Um, and so, you know, you'd see people in different places and it just became sort of a, a familiar thing. So, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, I saw Jane's Addiction, I don't know, a hundred times. Good God. It was a lot. <laughs> you know, it, it was a lot. Um, now, now, as an interjection, I'm, I'm I'm really curious to know about what else was on your radar, because in Kansas, I would go to parties in my mullet where I would drink wine coolers and people would play like maybe White Snake, but <laughs> but definitely Millie Vanilli and like Phil Collins and Richard Marks. I mean, did people nope. in your crowd <laughs> listen to Richard Marks or Millie Vanilli or was this just was I just like a victim of of, you know, prescribed music in my part of the country? You are, yeah, you're a victim of Top 40 Radio. We had K-Rock, which which came in pretty muddy into Palm Springs, but if you drove 30 miles, you could pick up K-Rock. And K-Rock, for those of you who don't know, is, and in the 80s, and particularly the, the, the 90s as well, was the top alternative rock station in America. Hmm. And so they played music that I thought was popular that no one had ever heard of. Like, for instance, I'm a big drama-rama fan. And so you probably know them from the song Anything, Anything. That's their one sort of song that most people know. Like, they would play concerts in L.A., and they'd sell out like big places and they'd go play somewhere else and they'd get 200 people. And so there were these sort of regional bands that K-Rock played. Curious to know, Todd, how did you know about these bands? Because I, I think now like my situation in the late 1980s was very specific to how kids lived back then is that I was sort right. of I was sort of trapped by AOR radio, the fact that I lived in the Great Plains and there weren't really there wasn't a K-Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I knew about the cult and I knew about Metallica and I was faintly scared of Kansas kids who liked Metallica because there's a pretty <laughs> rough bunch. <laughs> And there was there was maybe four or five skaters um, in my school who may have listened to Jane's Addiction, but I wasn't sure. And I knew about that album. It was called. I, I thought it was sort of funny that the album was called Nothing Shocking and had this very very shocking image of these Siamese twins, women with their hair on fire, naked. Right. Um, and I knew about that from Rolling Stone. So so it's like I had these little hints of the of the bands you were listening to, but just it was basically hand-to-hand cassette tapes and whatever Rolling Stone was covering. So how did you know about all of these awesome bands that end up influencing 90s music, basically? So there was the there was K-Rock, and then there was 91X, which came out of San Diego. Um, and they played a lot of these bands. And you could pick them up in, in the desert in Palm Springs, um, you know, fairly well. And, you know, you would drive into L.A. a lot or drive into San Diego. Palm Springs is two hours from L.A. and two hours from San Diego. Hmm. Um, so right in the middle. Um, so there was that, um, hung out at a lot of record stores, you know, um, uh, and you, you know, there's always that, that cool man or that cool woman who worked at Moby disc or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> who would be like, Oh, you're into the beastie boys. You should listen to X. Well, I think it's interesting that you have these mentor figures in the, uh, indie rock stores in the indie record stores. And, I, mm-hmm. and I, I'm thinking about like the most iconic movie ever made about independent record stores is High Fidelity. Right. Which came out at an interesting time. And I think if there's if there's one um, take home for listeners from this podcast, it's just about how 
the information culture surrounding music changed. And I think that music came, that uh, movie came out in 99. I'm not sure when the book was written, but it was a time when before, you know, in the 80s and 90s, if you wanted to know, if you wanted to showcase your knowledge about music, for example, or even the fashion surrounding music and, and whether or not to wear eyeliner to the concert, <laughs> you, you had to get it from friends or from indie record stores or from, from mentor type figures. Whereas, you know, a later generation can just look this up online. They can get every single detail of their goth rock repertoire right before they go to the show. Whereas it sounds like... Uh, the indie record store, and maybe you uh, you you hinted that you eventually worked at an indie record store. Yeah, um, it really was something that kept you from being a complete idiot. Like I, I was literally walking around Wichita, Kansas, in hiking boots, a beret. I saw my <laughs> mullet. I think I put some beads in my mullet. I love Jane's Addiction, but I had no idea what other bands sounded like them. And so I was really to use another another religious metaphor. Like I was walking in the wilderness. You know, I was. Mm-hmm. I, I had no idea what was going on and, until maybe a little bit later when, when culture started to shift grunge-wise, which I want to talk to about a little bit later. But it sounds like in California, you were really getting through personal relationships and literally going to shows. That's how you were getting your sensibility. Yeah, absolutely. And an interesting thing to think about, too, like as it relates to what you're just talking about, sort of the way the culture was um, existing at the same time, a band like Jane's Addiction made it safe for people sort of on the fringes of these, of the, my friend groups and things like that to be like, yeah, you know what? I am gay. Yeah, I am. And I can tell you that now I'm gay because Stephen Perkins and Dave Navarro and Perry Farrell are tongue kissing on the stage. Uh If they can do that, I can do that. And so you would have these conversations if, if, people felt that they could be vulnerable enough to you to say like, Hey, I'm not offended by that because you know, I feel the same way. And I remember like, I, I, I won't say this person's name because I haven't seen them in 30 years, but I remember having a conversation with this young guy and we were both young guys. We were, you know, 17 years old and Perry and Dave Navarro were tongue kissing on the stage. And this was a guy who had played a bunch of sports and was, you know, he was that guy, you know, he was right. that guy. <laughs> and he was like, man, I wish I could feel so free to be up there doing something like that. Here was a group of guys who played this muscular, unusual sounding rock where where the 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 beefy dudes in the front were slamming into each other. There were pretty boys on the sides and pretty girls, too. Like everyone was welcome there and no one got freaked out by anything that was unusual. And in Southern California, like that made it feel like you were part of the circus. Hmm. And it it feeds into this idea that Perry Farrell had of creating Lollapalooza many years later. But like it was a real like when you were there, you were part of, uh, you know, to use today's parlance, you were in a safe space Hmm. and you could be who you wanted to be. And that's something that came through even to me in the middle of the country, um, because I think there's there is something muscular about Jane's Addiction. There's something heavy and and heavy metal influence. You know, mm-hmm. and famously the band is sort of Perry Farrell and Eric Avery were sort of into goth rock, whereas Stephen Perkins and Dave Navarro sort of were more interested in heavy metal. And of course, you know, I think that there were kids in Kansas who listened to bands like The Cure or Joy Division, but I wasn't one of them. I was a little bit more jockey. Um, mm-hmm. And I, it wasn't like I was homophobic or anything. It was just that I didn't really have, that was just a different world to me. And so seeing the gothiness 
combined with the heaviness of Jane's addiction, and they they actually put out a video called Soul Kiss, mm-hmm. where they show the guys kissing. And this was before, you know, I think Kurt Cobain. There's some interesting parallels between Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, and then Jane's addiction and its members. Nirvana, I think, when it broke, was seen as a little bit cooler than Jane's addiction. Maybe mm-hmm. not in, in Southern California, but I know that they kissed you know, straight guys kissing on Saturday Night Live, which was seen as this big thing. But that was years after the Jane's Addiction guys did it. Right. And, um, of course, they had this very shocking art on Nothing's Shocking. I don't know if you've looked that closely at the album, at the inner parts of that album, but there's a picture of of Perry with his shirt off wearing sunglasses. And if you look close, he's wearing a mirror, and you can see that he's completely naked in that picture. (laughs) <laughs> I have some vague memory of that. <laughs> right. And so there was, a, there was a very distinctive sexuality, sort of a pansexuality that came through the album. Um, and I was a straight guy listening to it in the Midwest, but it, there was sort of this sexual ambiguity or this pansexuality that made it a little bit scary, but a little bit interesting. And I think even though, you know, it wasn't like a, a you know, Jane's Addiction inspired me to grow my hair out, right? And, <laughs> and, and listen to other sorts of music. Like it wasn't that radical for me, but yet it re- very much was transitional. I eventually moved to Oregon. I listened to bands that eventually became involved with grunge. And grunge is seen as this real sea change in culture in a way that you can't really have sea change in culture anymore because there's no centralized culture, right? Right. And so for me, and I actually wrote it, I do you remember a magazine called Alternative Press? Of course. How dare you? Uh, okay. Well, I actually wrote they, – they had a contest in like the mid-90s talking – they had like the best 100 alternative albums of all time. Mm-hmm. And they didn't include nothing shocking. And so I wrote them a letter, an angry letter, saying that basically Jane's Addiction, Nothing Shocking, was the John the Baptist. It was the voice crying in the wilderness to the Jesus Christ of – <laughs> of uh, Jane's Addiction or of uh, of Nirvana's Nevermind. And I was, I was a little bit tongue-in-cheek about it. Of course, they didn't print it. But I genuinely believed, <laughs> I think it's, it's accepted now, that Nirvana couldn't have had its, its impact without the Jane's Addictions uh, you For know, sure. walking For sure. the world before then. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I mean, when you think about um, some of the, the other bands that existed sort of at the same time, like Mud Honey, like Mud Honey had been mm. around for a bit, um, but th- there's no there's no popularity of Nirvana. There's no popularity of Soundgarden, which is basically Jane's Addiction with a different lead singer, mm. um, without without Jane's Addiction starting it off. I mean, they they Jane's Addiction was was essentially like Nirvana and Kiss makeup, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But I think there's something to be said for the raw power. And you talk about it in the essay you just read about the sound of the guitars in Up the Beach or Ocean Size that all of a sudden take you to a different uh, plane of existence, as it were. And there's something of the same thing in um, in the first two Nirvana albums. I'm speaking of Bleach and Nevermind, uh, not in utero as the second, but as the third. Right. Um, and you really get that. Well, I think, too, that there were literally Seattle bands that it felt to me were sort of trying to be Jane's Addiction. If you remember Love, Mother Love Bone, which is oh, yeah, of course. Pearl Jam before Pearl Jam, and yeah. whose lead singer passed away. In fact, Apple, the Mother Love Bone album that came out after Andrew Wood died, came out on the same day as Ritual Day Low Habitual. Okay, yeah. And and, and their, their persona, I mean, Pearl Jam 
was was not trying to be Jane's addiction, but it felt like Mother Love Bone sort of had this gothy sort mm-hmm. of less less jockey, more more sexually ambiguous feel to it. Um, and that was, and I think some members of that band have said that that they went to Jane's addiction shows and were blown away. Yeah, and in fact, the lead singer sort of sounds like Perry Farrell too. Um, he's got that same kind of higher pitch. Um, and but like a song by Mother Love on like Stargazer or Chloe Dancer, like those are Crown of Thorns. Um, mm-hmm. Those are songs that you could put right into a Jane's Addiction album. No one would know any difference. Right. Yeah. And I think people mostly know Mother Love Bone through Temple of the Dog, which is sort of the Chris oh, Cornell right. meets Eddie Vedder <laughs> sort of memorial album afterwards, which which also produced some great songs. But that's that's almost as if. Like Jane's addiction, like Perry Farrell died, and then they started making, you know, then they were, then their lead singer was a basketball fan who also <laughs> surfed. I mean, that that's Pearl Jam, you know, in yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> very similar. <laughs> no, it it feels like it. Yeah, it feels like they're that you take away Jane's addiction, and what came out of Seattle would have been a little different. I think they have a nice view of where they fit into the culture. Um, and they know that they're important to people. Um, and they know that that for the sake of nostalgia, some people really view them in an important way. When I was younger, I would have presumed that Jane's Addiction would have played a larger role in my life heretofore. Um, but, you know, I, I, go, I can go months without hearing one of their songs unless I, I go and pick it up on Spotify. And part of it is that you know, I don't need to release that feeling anymore. Mm. And sometimes hearing those old songs takes me back to whatever depression I felt at 18. Um, you know, the the thing that made me want to drive through the desert listening to Mountain Song on one tape recorded 14 times, um, you know, that doesn't exist in me anymore for the most part. And so sometimes listening to those songs takes me to a place that isn't comfortable and then sometimes I hear those songs and it's just absolute bedlam and joy in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's true sometimes when you encounter any old friend, you know, when you've got something that you've got a lot of history with, there's that moment where you're like, oh my God, it's so great to see you. And then at some point there's the, God, remember when this bad thing happened or that bad thing happened. And you have to go through that gamut with that person again, whether you say it out loud or it just happens in your mind. It's there whether or not you want it. And I feel that way sometimes with the music that was really important to me from, you know, 16 to 20. I listen to Jane's Addiction so much. I mean, you saw them a hundred times in person. I listened to that to to nothing shocking, maybe 10,000 times. I'm not sure, but it was a lot. (laughs) And it's like I used up my lifetime allotment of listening to that album. So I don't listen to it much anymore just because between 1989 and 1993, I listened to it at least once a day. I mean, it was just, it was this sort of obsessive compulsive thing. And so I don't really feel it was, that was sort of a time of becoming for me. There wasn't right. a lot of depression in my life, but, and I, I felt like I was finally coming into who I was. But I really feel the passage of time. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I listen to these songs and I think this, and I'll never feel the same way again as I listen when I listen to those songs from 1989 and 1993. Um, and so the feeling can never be replicated. I, it can, I can remember the feeling, mm-hmm. um, and I can maybe get a little taste of the feeling, but I really feel the passage of time. There's something almost like in the laws of physics about listening to a song that you loved, loved, loved 30 years ago now. 
I don't know what it's like to be a young person now. If, if listening to an album can literally make you feel like you're infinite and that your life has been changed. <laughs> I but... don't know if they listen to albums anymore. I think they just listen to, you know, one Drake song here and there. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, that the, the era of the album is largely dead. That's why artists release, you know, songs any given time. Yeah, and so there's something about that essay that I think that it, it was a sort of excitement that I felt, like an existential excitement that I'm not sure if exists in that way anymore. And so literally I listen to it and I feel the passage of of time to an excitement that I don't feel anymore and that I'm not sure if people can feel in that way anymore because like you say, that you don't you don't consume music. It's not packaged in the same way anymore. Um, but I have a two-part question. Um one has to do with YouTube. The first one, though, has to do with, is Jane Says the free bird of our generation? <laughs> well, I think it would be if people covered it. Hmm. But people don't cover it. And that makes it still belong to Jane's addiction. Um, ah, yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's their song. Yeah. That, you know, if and people don't even really cover "Smells Like Teen Spirit" or something. You know, that's Nirvana's song. I'm trying to think of. It really only happens when someone dies that mm. <laughs> a song becomes more ubiquitous. So, for instance, after Prince died, and um, Bruce Springsteen came out on the first night of his show in New York and did "Purple Rain," and it was amazing, just the most amazing cover of that song I've ever heard. But he did it as like a form of catharsis for the world. Like, all right, look, Coldplay can go play Raspberry Beret and it'll be sad. I'm going to get up here and I'm going to play Purple Rain. And that might be the last time you hear Purple Rain the, thing, the way you think you want to hear it. Huh. Um, but I don't I don't think Jane Says has reached the the level of of anthem, like even if, if someone played Purple Rain at a concert, every single person would know the words. If they played yeah. Jane Says at a concert, someone might be like, what's that What what's that weird drum? What is that, Why, <laughs> right. what is that thing? Are they gonna cook in that? What is that? <laughs> um, so no, I do not think it is the free bird of the alt, uh, of the alt world, maybe Wonderwall is. <laughs> okay. Well, you actually make me feel better because I randomly read in an article that Jane says is the free bird, and you've you've actually you've decisively convinced me that it's not. But like free bird, you know, to me, like the way I received free bird was was just there was sort of a an older generation lameness to that, and so I feel a little bit about that. But the second, better about that. The, the second part of this question is. Basically, you listen to a song like Jane Says, for example, or, or it, Ocean Size or something on YouTube, and the algorithm will give you other songs. And it feels like the algorithm, I feel, is smarter than I am because <laughs> what will happen is I'll, I'll listen to a Jane's Addiction song. It'll give me like the Pixies' Where Is My Mind, which is exactly what I want to listen to. Mm -hmm. And then that'll give me like the amp the breeders and then it'll give me the amps and pretty soon i'm listening to new orders age of consent which i didn't listen to at the time but totally reminds me of the 1980s in a way mm -hmm. that i cannot explain or it'll give me like the gary newman song me do you know this did you listen? i do and, and i am going through this phase right now where i am just completely fixated with gary newman who <laughs> Who came? Who came out with music more than forty years ago? This is a nineteen seventy nine song that I think sounds wonderful in the same way that I listened to New Order, Age of Consent, two years ago in a way that I loved. In the same way that I listened to Joy Division, 
maybe six years ago in a way that I totally love. It feels like in a way, and you can disagree with me, YouTube is smarter than us and it sort of not only takes us into nostalgic rabbit holes, but it augments them with awesome music that we haven't properly considered yet. I agree. And I think that, you know, Spotify does the same thing when it when it sends me that I get an, uh, a new playlist every week, Discover Weekly, and it's based on your algorithm. And it's bands I've never heard of playing songs I've never heard of. And I love, you know, 75% of them. Um, but the thing about like a song like Age of Consent, which I think is important, is that it sounds, it, it, I, I love that song from the first moment I heard it. It's one of my all-time favorites. Huh. But it, it reminds you of that time because every single band in the world ripped off the guitar riff. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus and Mary Chains, one big hit in America, head on, is the exact same song. Yeah. Um, so, and it's and you also heard it and didn't recognize it in the background of every '80s teen movie that existed because New Order had a good marketing department. They got their stuff into all the teen movies. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that the internet has shown. Um, a surprising ability to predict exactly what I want when I precisely want it. The sad thing is I also sometimes watch like street fights in Austin. Like, <laughs> oh, what happened there? And then it's like four hours later, I'm like, oh, someone got into a fight in Philadelphia. Uh, <laughs> but for music specifically, it can lead you in very interesting places. But the line from Gary Newman to Jane's Addiction is a straight one. Huh. There is no Jane's Addiction without the glam rock of Gary Newman. Like he started an era of men in eyeliner uh, that, you know, David Bowie popularized, but Gary Newman made it um, into pop songs. And yeah. that goes directly into, uh, into Jane's Addiction, you know, from Gary Newman to T-Rex to Jane's Addiction, all those bands. Maybe somehow YouTube or, or Spotify through some sort of crowdsourcing, it's smarter about music than we are. That basically, I love Gary Newman and New Order Age of Consent because it influenced music I love, including Jane's Addiction. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think the same thing happens if you watch uh, clips of old TV shows on YouTube. It will suggest things that you might like that you've never even heard of before. I, there was one night that I ended up in a deep uh, Dick Van Dyke show rabbit hole. <laughs> I mean, of course, I'd seen the Dick Van Dyke show, but I had barely any memories of it. And, you know, for the next five hours, I watched him trip over that damn ottoman. Well, I go through these rabbit holes in sports. Now, I think there's there's an there's an exception. I think you listen to one podcast with a little bit of a political tinge, and then you're into a weird political rabbit hole on YouTube. I really hate yes. it. Yeah. Like YouTube decides that I, I'm of this certain political persuasion, and so it tries to make me mad. I don't like that at all. But with sports, I'll, I'll like look at – I'm a Royals fan, as you know. I'll look at some Royals highlights, and pretty soon it's like three hours later, and I'm looking at these amazing catches that I didn't know that members of the 1970s <laughs> California Angels made in, in, this, in 1978, you know? And so it's the same thing. I think it does music the best, but it also does sports quite well and probably television as well too. Yeah, and that didn't exist when we were kids. That's why you didn't get Jane's Addiction until that nice young girl, Hadley, popped in the cassette tape and – 
and drove you to ecstasy. Like Hadley was your YouTube algorithm. She looked at you and she was like, number one, it's not happening between us. Number two, <laughs> you need some music that actually makes people want to have sex playing around you. And that's not going to be Richard Marks or NXS or whatever it is. It's going to be up the beach. This like, is a bullseye, Todd. That's exactly what it is. Hadley yeah. was my YouTube algorithm. I they used to be flesh and blood people that you look at, and it's just like, oh my god, I will never have a romantic relationship with you. But you changed my life in the way that losing one's virginity does. Right, <laughs> right. Or or having sex the second time when you know how to do it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you you sound luckier than me, Todd. But. Uh... <laughs> I don't, know. Ma- I don't know. Maybe fourth or fifth, but um <laughs> Well, now that we- this is this is an epiphany, realizing that really in a sense that in the late 1980s it was people like Hadley, it was human beings that were your YouTube algorithm that realized that gave you the music that you realized was what exactly what you needed. Mm-hmm. And and so since this is bringing us full circle in a great way, um, what are some other legacies of bands like Jane's Addiction, other bands that could change our life in that very organic way? How does that, how have they changed the way we listen to music now? Hmm. Jeez, that's a good question. You know, I, I think that the the legacy of um, of a band like Jane's Addiction is the the melding of forms, you know, genre doesn't really exist in music anymore. You know, it used to be like there was country and there was rock and there was punk and there was heavy metal and there was this and there was that. But when you look at the number one song of the year, um, uh, what's it called? Old country road. Um, I'm, I'm butchering the title of it. Um, you know, get my horse from, from the barn, you know, where it's an African American who's homosexual rapping a country song. It became the number one song in the world. Of 2019. Of 2019. Billboard refused to count it as a country western record for reasons entirely related to race. (sighs) Country stars jumped on and started singing it with him. And then there's a punk rock version and a metal version. All these things. This song has transcended culture. And it doesn't matter anymore because people aren't consuming their music on radio stations. They're consuming it over streaming services. So you're not being force-fed, um, you know, ghettoized music necessarily. Now, I, of course, I listen to a lot of satellite radio, I suppose. And, you know, that that's really niche You know, you could just listen to Grateful Dead Station if you want to. Mm. Um, but more often than not, like you, I'm on YouTube or I'm on Spotify or whatever, and I'm just hitting random and I'm playing whatever is is just showing up. And and so I think the the melding of genres is a big part of it. Um, I think the pansexuality part of it is is more prevalent now than it has ever been. I think it's paved the way for acceptance. Thank God. Um, you know, once you know what starts out as deviant culture ends up as uh, commonplace more often than not. And um, I think Jane's addiction plays a role in that. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Jane's addiction and the novels of Todd Goldberg, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>